Hello and welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. My name is Toby Webb and I'm delighted that joining me in today's podcast are Paloma Lopez and Sean Ansett, who are co-founders of Future Fit Foods. So, welcome to the podcast both. Paloma, why don't you start us off? What is Future Fit Foods all about? And what makes your company stand out from all the other food startups out there? Interesting Foods is a startup out of Boulder, Colorado. We are focused on bringing plant-based convenience foods to people that are have been designed to be restorative in nature. And we're addressing two challenges that we've been experiencing in convenience foods for the last few decades. One is the lack of sustainability of much of the packaging in convenience foods. And the second one is what's in the food and how do we make sure that beyond being super tasty and convenient, our foods are also very healthy for people and planet. Well, let's talk about the kind of foods that you're making then. Give us an example. I know you've just launched a line of freeze-dried soups called suppers. Is that right? Yeah, we actually have just launched some supas mid-July. We launched a pre-sale campaign and started shipping them on August 1st. Supas are a line of plant-based mini meals that are nutrient-packed. What makes supas really unique? And the first few products we've launched are essentially soups that are light in weight, meaning they're packet size. They each weigh about a little bit less than one ounce. We've used an Incan-inspired technique to preserve most of the nutrients and to ensure that people have a fantastic experience once they rehydrate the foods. But really what makes Supas unique is the types of recipes we've used, which have been inspired by cuisines from different parts of the world, including one from the Southern United States and two from Asia, and also the nutrients that come in each one of those Supas which are a good source of fiber, which is probably the most important, uh, one of the most important nutrients, and also a good source of protein beyond iron and other key ingredients. But really, again, you know, what we have done that is different from other soups you would find in the marketplace today is to really design supas with that idea of how can we design soups that are really good for people on the planet that are convenient, meaning not just convenient because they prepare in three minutes, which they do, but because you can put them in your packet and they're less than one ounce and they're perfectly designed for e-commerce because we're not shipping water around. There's no need for that. And then from a value chain perspective, everything we've done, we all of our ingredients are organic, non-GMO, but we've really thought through what ingredients will bring the most flavor and nutrition to people. So we've been very selective on our website, we have all the details in terms of where ingredients come from. We're still working with our partners on bringing more transparency. That's a really big part of what we're doing. And then from a packaging perspective, we've opted for packaging that is made out of industrial compostable materials. We know that the road to compostability is not perfect, that there's a lot of challenges from an infrastructure perspective. But we do believe that is the way into the future of packaging and needs to come back to the earth and regenerate and bring nutrients back. Recycling, while it's good, it's not sufficient. I would like to ask you what industrially compostable means and what the material is in the packaging. But before we do that, let's talk more about the food. We've all had experience with dehydrated food. 
It's not always been that positive in terms of haute cuisine. My experience of it was being a student, being on camping trips, and just trying to get some nutrition into you, no matter the fact that often it didn't taste very much. Now, I know your products are different. You spent a lot of time on flavor. How do you make them taste of something? Because that must be a roadblock to overcome. I'm going to let Sean actually introduce himself and answer that question. I think it's important to note that there's a difference between freeze drying and dehydration. Freeze drying locks in roughly 97% of the nutrition. Then it's rehydrated with water. While there are a lot of the camping meals that you mentioned or student meals seeking that quick nutrition, a lot of those are components that are dehydrated. And you certainly do not lock in the flavor as you do with freeze drying. Freeze drying is a more expensive technique than dehydration. And a lot of those camping foods are actually individual ingredients that you then reconstitute. What we do with supas is we fully cook the soup, the product itself, all from fresh and organic ingredients, as Paloma had mentioned earlier. And then that whole mixture is freeze dried which really maintains, it's almost this marriage as the Italians talk about, right? The marriage between pasta and sauce that they really should be cooked together for, for some period of time. So all those flavors are locked in as a part of the soup and the broth itself. So it's a very different technique. And really, it's just an amazing experience. We can't wait for you to try them because not only the taste, but the experience itself, you just see this bounty of flavor. You could imagine like a lush bomb, right? These bath bombs, and you get this uh, very vibrant color as well as flavor and taste. So that's really the power of freeze drying over dehydration. Yeah. And from a nutrient retention perspective, which Sean touched on, freeze drying retains over 95%. Compared to rehydration, it's quite superior. From that point of view, there's, there's those benefits. And the reason for that is freeze-drying does not change the structure of the food versus dehydration. In layman's terms, can one of you volunteer to describe the differences in ways that we can understand? The freeze-drying technique that we use, the, the ingredients are cooked. They go into a freeze-drying machine that is very, very low temperature freezing temperature, below freezing, and that dries out the food. So this technique was invented by the Incans rather than NASA, which many people may be familiar with, right? The freeze-dried ice cream for astronauts. But you can imagine Incans taking potatoes, right? The, where potatoes come from initially is Peru, and taken to the very top of Machu Picchu. And that's where the cold air but also very low humidity dries the food and loss of nutrients. Same technique, but put in a modern setting with a machine. So extremely low humidity and very cold temperatures. And dehydration then, uh, which is the more traditional method, which you're not using, how does that work? Yeah, when you dehydrate, you're essentially extracting all the water. And when you extract all the water, with that goes some of the nutrients. It also changes the molecular structure of the food. Got it. So the freeze-drying retains cell wall structure and therefore retains nutrients and flavors. Dehydration also retains nutrients. It's not like everything is washed out at all. That's not the point. It's just with some of the dehydration method with the water, it changes the structure of the food. That's why when you rehydrate dehydrated food, the food is not like fresh. 
However, with freeze-drying, because as Sean was describing, your very low temperatures, it evaporates versus you extract the water. So the structure remains quite intact to the point where when you later put water to it, you get a much closer experience to fresh. That's very helpful. Thank you. Both color, texture, and nutrient retention are superior. I can understand the difference. It sounds like it's just more gentle a process. Is there an energy issue? Let's say supers gets uh, taken to market in a big way. I'm sure you're not going to sell out like all the other ethical brands do inevitably. (laughs) (laughs) But let's say you really want to go to scale. Is there an energy issue with freeze drying or is it energy efficient? Actually, that's an area of great opportunity, I think, in the freeze-drying space, because you're taking the food at very low temperatures. It is energy intensive in that part of the process. There are, however, opportunities that we're hoping to tap on of how we use more renewable energy through the processing. So when you're looking at the impacts from an environmental point of view, you're looking at the full value chain, not just the processing itself. Obviously, from a transportation perspective, our foods are much lighter. We're not transporting water. But you're correct that from a processing perspective, it's quite a energy intensive. And so what we're working on right now is to see if our partners will move into renewable energy for that part of the cooking, cooking preservation processing. Sean, any builds there? So again, you know, from a life cycle perspective, we're looking at the, the full process. We're also, uh, we'll get into sourcing, I'm sure, in a second but the majority of our ingredients are sourced from the U.S. We are plant-based. We're using a lot of vegetables. And then again, you know, from a transportation perspective, we make our foods less than one ounce. But yes, absolutely, the, the process of cooking is, is quite energy intensive. So you're set up to try and solve some big problems, nutrition, access to that, not moving water around. Super sounds like a, a great product. It certainly looks amazing when I've seen the videos of it. I can't wait to try some because I'm constantly living off organic soups where I'm shipping water around in order to do that. So I would I'd love to reduce my footprint by trying them. But what else is on the menu for you guys? Is there another product or two in the pipeline? I know that developing them can be very time consuming. Yeah, Toby, thanks for asking that. And I appreciate you raising the point of shipping water around. We look closely at traditional soups on shelves today, which as you're aware, often are in cans. And at times those cans have linings that cannot be recycled. And secondly, then you have the whole cold supply chain of soups, which are often fully cooked soups that are wrapped in plastic and creates a lot of waste and weight in the system. That was our deliberate decision from our design intent to create something that was lightweight. Yeah, there certainly are. You can imagine during COVID, and we're still living through a pandemic, a lot of the channels have been closed down. One, supermarkets were not taking new products on board, kind of sticking with staples for that period of time. And then access, certainly in the US where where we live, Uh, to cafes and other types of channels were also closed. Their businesses were were very much challenged. We're seeing these channels start to open up again. And really from our interest in Future Fit Foods was developing packaging that would compost and that home compostability. We have been working closely with a great organization in London called NOPLA, N-O-P-T-L-A, If you're not familiar with them, please check them out. And they're looking at solutions like this. So basically, you could imagine us creating a ramen-type product. All those sachets that you typically see in a ramen, which are plastic and you're tossing out, 
this type of packaging would actually become part of the broth itself and add substance as well as some weight to the broth. You wouldn't have to toss these things out. Great for backpackers, but also in a cafe setting. So those are the types of solutions we're looking for. We've come up with two packages, for example, that the waste from cutting of the vegetables and so forth actually become the packaging itself. And then that could be home composted. We're looking at solutions with orange peels and other types of packaging solutions. So that's the direction we want to go in but we need those channels open in order to test and check the viability of those products. When you guys were setting up, we had a conversation about the idea of compostable packaging. And I know you've had some challenges. I follow your blog and you did a kind of mere culpa on your blog, which I thought was an excellent exercise in transparency, where you talked about the challenges of getting sustainable packaging. So just to start out, what is industrially compostable? And that doesn't sound very consumer friendly. So how does that work if, if I buy your soups? I'd love to hear a bit more about all that. There are two types of compostable materials and packaging. And, and by the way, there's a difference between compostable materials and packaging as well. I'll explain that in a second. The first type is the home compostable, which by the way, in the USA, there is not a certification for that. There is certification in Europe that a number of brands use. And then there is industrial compostability, which is essentially materials that will compost at very specific, very high temperatures in an industrial compostable, a commercial composter, which is available in some parts of the U.S., but obviously with very limited distribution. While home compostability is something anybody could do in their backyard, as long as you have a pile of compost and you move it around and you know what to put in there with industrial compostability, you need to have access, just like with recycling, you need to have access to that facility because the temperatures require different. So that's kind of the bigger of the differences, but also, like I said, the fact that in the U.S. you have to get the industrial compostability certification because there isn't such a thing as a home compostable certification. That being said, from a materials perspective, our pouches are made out of what is called bio-based. So in some cases, it's plant-based. It's the materials that will compost the fastest it really is next generation packaging because it mirrors a lot of the high barrier moisture and oxygen, the barriers that are required in packaging, in convenience packaging. The reason why so many brands have not moved into compostable was because they were waiting for this next generation packaging that would ensure them that they could preserve their food their same way. Those materials now exist from a bio-based perspective. The challenge we are encountering that is mentioned in our blog is while we have found materials that are bio-based and industrially compostable and BPI certified, there's still another step that needs to take place, which is the full lamination. The two materials need to pass another test. And so that is a process which we are at a moment of a lot of change in packaging but it's one step at a time. And even when you have the full certification, as you know, many people don't have access to composting facilities. We hope that will change. We are offering people a take-back program. We're essentially we're trying to remove the barriers for people who really want to compost. Um, we send a pre-stamp envelope. And all you've got to do is put your flat pouches back into that envelope that is all paid for and ship it back to us so we can take care of properly disposing the materials. So 
So, you know, we hope to see is more manufacturers accountability into the future where companies that either use recycling or composting, compostable materials also offer their customers the option to take back the packaging. Because even with recycling, where there's a little bit more options for recycling, a lot of brands have moved into recyclable materials. But the reality is only 9% of all plastics get recycled in the U.S. If we had more manufacturers taking back packaging and properly disposing of that packaging, we would really start closing the loop. It's not happening today. But it's the same thing for both composting and recycling. We need a manufacturer's accountability. Well, we're certainly seeing extended producer responsibility schemes being extended in various markets around the world. You've thought a lot about this. We all end up with far more packaging than we need. We don't know how to recycle it. The local infrastructure is problematic for consumers. We know all of that. But if we're all sending all of our packaging back to the manufacturers, is that really the best solution in the sense that we're just going to have a lot of logistics sending packaging around? It feels to me like the why are we shipping water around argument. Is it the least worst solution given the infrastructure problems at a local level? What we want to do is encourage full proper disposing, recycling, and composting of materials. When you put it back into the hands of the brands, there's an extra step for making sure that unlike when you just leave it up to the recyclers in the area where, like we know, 9% gets recycled, there's an extra step for making sure that a lot more gets recycled, right? We take the responsibility of not just saying this is recyclable or compostable. We take the responsibility of saying this is going to be recycled or composted. And for that reason, I think that is part of the solution. It is not the entire solution because, as you said, ideally people are able to do this in their neighborhoods, in their towns, in their cities. We need to start walking towards that direction and clearly to leave it all up to the regional facilities for recycling and so forth is is not sufficient. From a shipping perspective, we're talking about mega, mega, mega light packaging it's essentially just a flat envelope because our packs are so light. It's not the solution, but it's about taking responsibility and eventually demonstrating that every single pack and every single fan needs to be recycled or composted. So it is just part of kind of this bigger solution, but it is not necessarily, I don't think we envision that. We hope that as Sean mentioned, as we move into more home compostable and other types of materials, that people can do it at home give them other options besides the take back. That's kind of the idea. And we're also looking at bulk solutions where we move even away from using too much packaging. So that's also part of the conversation is um, how can we move away from packaging as well ourselves by driving convenience to people without the need for the single packaging. Very complex challenges out there. I do appreciate that. What's next for you? If I'm a retailer listening and I'm thinking, oh, that sounds like a great solution to some of my embedded CO2 footprint problems in my product offerings, I'd quite like to buy some of these supers. How many can you sell me? How quickly can you scale? And where do you want to get to in a year or two? Right now, we're working at relatively small scale with an ambition to scale up. This has been very scrappy, very hands-on. Plum and I have actually been in the kitchen cutting the vegetables and also packing the foods in a USDA certified innovation center. They were actually purchasing a new freeze dryer to create efficiencies in our process, which is very exciting, you know, much larger system. So we can reduce the cycle times to produce the supas themselves. What we really like about direct to consumer, our current model 
is we learn a lot in the process. We have a direct relationship with consumers. We can get feedback on the products from the whole customer experience to the food itself. See if all the recipes are aligned with our customers and what new recipes we might come up with. That's really good for us right now to learn that customer and and learn more about the products. We think there's great opportunity with uh, food service industries and airports where people are really meeting them where they're at when they're caught in a bind. And we all make bad choices when we're busy or rushed. We think that this mini meal fits perfectly with that type of customer. Corporate settings as well, that you have some of these sachets in your desk, or if you're not returning to the office at home or in co-working spaces, hospitals as well, where sadly, oftentimes there's not nutritious offerings in some of these uh, point of sale. That's where we're maintaining our focus. We've discussed this nine months down the line. We do want to scale much larger after we've gone through this learning process and be able to serve first very local outlets and retail, then regional, and then scale up from there. So that's kind of how we see our ramp going forward. Well, thank you both for your time and insights. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed understanding some of the trials and tribulations that one goes through to create a sustainable food startup. Have a look at Future Fit Foods website. The blog is excellent and regularly updated with authentic tales of what it's like to start a business from scratch. So congratulations to you both. I wish you all the success. Listeners, please do get in touch with Sean and Paloma. And remember, you heard it here first. We shall check back on your progress in a year or two and see where you're up to. In the meantime, thank you both so much. We'll be back with another podcast very soon. Thanks, Cody. And everyone check out www.getsupas.com. That's two Ps. Got it. Thank you.